No signature phrase from the Second Vatican Council is so completely affirmed across all the divides of the Catholic Church, the theological and the political spectrum of the believers in our Catholic faith. But that that phrase about the Eucharist, that the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. We Catholics believe that Christ gave us the Eucharist to, to feed us, to bring us together. We didn't make up the Eucharist after we went to Mass. It's the Eucharist that calls the liturgy into being. It's why we show up on Sunday. This is Oral Valley Catholic for the fourth Sunday of Advent. My brother Mike, who is one of my advisors theologically, says, even if the homily is crummy, I know Jesus will be in the Eucharist. So isn't it surprising that just last summer, the Pew Research Center announced with some fanfare that a recent survey of Americans' religious belief, their knowledge showed that only 31% of self-identifying Catholics believe that at Mass, the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. By contrast, about 69% told the Pew posters that bread and wine are just symbols of Christ's body and blood. How did we get there? Because we know it is the bedrock of our Catholic faith that God is present under the appearance of bread and wine, that God dwells amongst his people. It's why in the church we would genuflect in front of the tabernacle, why there's a little red candle burning next to the tabernacle. You know, weekly mass scores were the only group of Catholics in which a majority, 63%, chose actually become the, the body and blood of Christ rather than just a symbol. So what do you think? Do you think maybe people didn't understand the question? Or do you really think 60, what is it, 37% of people go to daily mass don't believe that Jesus is really there? And so we, here we are. We're in the fourth Sunday of Advent. For three Sundays, we've heard first about the end of the world, and then John the Baptist about the one who is coming. Something special is happening and we know that that something special is Christmas. Here on the fourth Sunday, we have a story about the virgin birth that Mary is betrothed to Joseph, but she's found to be with child by the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph wants to divorce her quietly, but an angel comes to him and says, no, this child will be called the Son of God. You will name him Jesus, Yeshua in Aramaic which means God saves. Uh, it is a person who does what their name says they do. So why did Matthew and St. Luke emphasize the virgin birth? You know, ancient people knew, they they were not stupid. Ancient people knew that virgins did not have babies. You just didn't spontaneously get pregnant. Now they didn't have biology in the sense that we have it and understand about chromosomes and sperm and egg. They had different ideas about it all. We know a lot more about conception than they did. But we all know that it takes a mama and a papa to have a baby. So why would both the Gospel of Luke and Matthew stress that Jesus of Nazareth was conceived by supernatural means. 
I mean, that was a tough sell in the Greco-Roman world. Apparently, according to the Pew Research, it's a tough sell now. They haven't asked, or I'm not aware they've asked about the virgin birth. But you see, in the ancient world, the Romans and the Greeks had this entire mountain filled with gods who conceived children with women. There is nothing more beautiful to a Greek or a Roman god than a comely human woman constantly down there chasing after him and having babies like Hercules, whose father is Zeus and his mother is a, is a human woman. And so he was a demigod somewhere in between. But overwhelmingly, in the Greco-Roman world, the culture didn't really believe it. I mean, they believed in money, sex, and power, and they would worship any god who would deliver fertility or prosperity or safety from enemies or victory in battle. I mean, human beings haven't really come very far uh, in so many ways. So why would Matthew and Luke invite the rejection of all these Gentiles that they want to, that they want to bring to Jesus? You know, in the background, of course, is the resurrection. Uh, you know, the ancient people, they believed in life after death. The Romans had the Elysian fields, the Greeks had Hades, the Jews had Sheol. None of them are like the Christian conception of heaven, but it was existence after you died, uh, mostly without a body. It was just kind of a ghostly existence. But when you start talking about virgins having babies without a, a, a male's intervention, dead bodies come back to life. You know, this doesn't happen. Why push it if what your basic message is, is you ought to really be good so God loves you and you go to heaven. Why? Because the moral part of it is an important part of Christianity, but it's not fundamentally the message. My friends, this is what Christianity is about. Strap yourself down and listen. Christianity's basic proclamation is God dwells amongst us. God is gathering his people. The way God gathers his people is through the Eucharist. When the apostles like St. Paul preached the good news, the Evangelion, that was the good news, that Jesus was gathering his people, he was the Son of God, and that he dwells amongst his people. So, what was St. Paul's preaching? We have a really good example of it in his letter to the Romans, which was the second reading at Mass today. His letter to the Romans was his introduction to the Jewish and Gentile Christians living in Rome. It is probably the most complete statement of what St. Paul believed. And here's how he starts out the letter because this is the key part. So listen to this. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and designated son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name 
among all the nations, including yourselves, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Let's just parse that a little bit, because that's a densely packed introduction, but it is at the core of what Paul's message is. Paul says that he's an apostle. That means an ambassador sent by a great king. And that great king was foretold by the prophets. Think about John the Baptist, Isaiah, all the prophets we've talked about in the first three Sundays of Advent. And then he's descended from David according to the flesh. Why? Because St. Joseph is from the house of David. Matthew makes that very clear in the gospel today. So according to the flesh, he's the Messiah that has been uh, foretold by all these prophets. But then Paul goes on, and we've covered this in these three Sundays of Advent also. And Paul says, quote, designated son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And so what brings about the resurrection from the dead? He is the son of God. It is the public revelation that God has walked amongst us. And so because of that, Paul's received grace, favor from God, supernatural intervention in his own life, and an apostleship. He's been sent. Why? To bring about the obedience of faith, to call all people to the faith of Israel, which was the original message of Israel, the whole point it was created by God. And it says that the obedience of faith is for the sake of God's name among all the nations, all the Gentiles including yourselves who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. St. Paul claimed that Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh, that is the womb of the virgin, designated son of God in power according to the spirit. So it's interesting, isn't it, that Paul uses the phrase good news? I've said a couple times a Greek word, evangelion. Evangelion is a Greek word that means good news. Our good news is just a translation of the Greek from Paul's letter, and, and it runs all through the early Christian texts. This is interesting. Archaeologists uncovered a Roman inscription, a Roman inscription celebrating the birthday of Caesar Augustus, the emperor. Remember, Caesar Augustus was the emperor at the time of Jesus' birth. They found this stone tablet in a town in Turkey uh, named Prien, and they think that it was a response to a request from the governor of that area uh, about the calendar. What they wanted to do was reorganize the calendar around Caesar Augustus's birthday. Well, as you know, it really got reorganized around Jesus's birthday by the Christians some several hundred years later. But this is an inscription that dates back to Jesus's time. Here's what the inscription says, quote, since the providence which has ordered all things is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue, that he might benefit mankind, sending him as a savior both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the God, Augustus, 
was the beginning of the world of the good tidings. Read the word Evangelion, good tidings, by reason that came from him. So the Romans thought Caesar Augustus's birthday was the good news. So when St. Paul is writing to Rome and the Roman emperor, Empire wants you to worship the emperor, and St. Paul says he has really good news, do you think he's ignorant of this? Or is he throwing down the gauntlet to all the worldly powers that challenge God? Here's St. Paul's good news. Not that a Roman emperor was born, lived, died, and was buried. His good news is that God had visited his people, dwells amongst them. The Romans tried to kill him and couldn't because our enemies aren't one another. Our enemy is death, and our king leads us against the powers of death. So the Roman emperor, good news, maybe not so much. Jesus Christ, count on him. Jesus was fully human, fully divine. He had a family. You know, the world has always made war on Christianity. Even at the time that Christianity emerged out of the catacombs and was recognized in the fourth century, there was an attack on Christianity led by a bishop named Arius. And what Arius wanted to do was to reconcile Christian theology with the Roman Empire. And so his idea, which is called Arianism, is that Jesus was chosen by God the Father and was a very special person. But emperors were chosen also, and they're special people because God chooses different people at different times to bring his message to the world. And so this is the fight over the Trinity. What is, how are we supposed to understand Scripture when St. Paul and Luke and Matthew talk about Jesus conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit? Always the suck, the attack, is to try to reduce Jesus to understandability, comprehensibility in human terms. And so the church has always affirmed the humanity of Jesus, but that he was God dwelling amongst us. Not somebody God chose, say like a saint, but in fact, the person of God. It's as if this God poked a hole in creation and his totality took on human flesh to reveal who God was or God is and that the sacraments are the way he shares that life with us. So the importance of Matthew's story, he tells it differently than Luke. But Matthew said that Mary and Joseph were betrothed. If you go and look at the Jewish encyclopedia online and you look up the word betrothal, betrothal is marriage, but it's marriage before consummation. Even our Catholic moral theology, we still draw the distinction between uh, uh, marriage by consent and consummated marriage. Um, it's consummation that makes marriage indissoluble and in under our canon law. And it's really rooted in these ancient understandings of marriage. Betrothal was more than an engagement. You were actually married when you were betrothed. You just hadn't come together yet 
in the husband's house. And that's why Matthew says that they were betrothed, but before Joseph and her, and her had come together, he found that she was pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why he said he was going to send her away. The word really means divorce her because that's the only way you can end a betrothal is a divorce. You have to get a, what's called a get from the rabbi and say three times in a public place, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Give her back all of her property that came in the marriage and send her home. That's what Jesus is preaching against in the gospels when he is attacking how a man could just set his wife aside. Isn't that interesting that that issue comes up? Because his dad, his adopted father, St. Joseph, refused to do that to his mom. Well, Matthew emphasizes the fulfillment of prophecy because it also says that according to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that a virgin will bear a child and he will be called Emmanuel, which literally means God is with us. And so in a family, it's the image of God's grace, the supernatural power of God emerging, taking place, living in the most basic human relationship, which is marriage. It's one of the reasons that we say marriage is a sacrament, a sign of the union between God and heaven, because it, so it was in the marriage of Joseph and Mary that brought Christ into the world. So in Genesis, it said that uh, God breathed into the human being his life-giving spirit, in Greek his panoima, in Hebrew, it's ruah. And to make the person his image and likeness in the world, he made man and woman out of what was called Adama. It's where we get the name Adam. But he doesn't call them human beings until they are male and female. Adama has been made human by becoming male and female. The Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches that the birth of Jesus was a divine work that surpasses all human understanding. The Catechism says the same is true of the resurrection. If you've got to make everything boil down to terms that you can understand based on your experience, you can never be open to God's action in your life. Our tradition teaches that the virginal conception of Jesus was the fulfillment of the divine promise given through Isaiah that his virginal conception was neither a legend nor a pagan myth. It's history. The incarnation, which we celebrate at Christmas, is that God entered human history and revealed to us things that reason cannot discover, but you can only know by faith in Jesus Christ. It's why Jesus and the proclamation of Jesus, born of a virgin, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, is the good news. It is the reason for the season. It's why we celebrate Christmas. The virgin birth, the resurrection, and the Eucharist. What do you think about that Pew uh, poll that said that Catholics uh, lose their faith in the real presence of Christ? Do you think it simply tracks the culture and decline of religion? When religion simply becomes about doing good, that God wants you to be a good person, and, and that is what brings you to 
to uh, God. Don't you think something essential is being missed? Doesn't this sound like the same fight that the church has been in for 2,000 years? Doesn't this sound like Bishop Arius who wants to make Jesus just like a Roman emperor, powerful, but really no different than Augustus or Muhammad? Or how about Buddha or any other uh, great, religion le great religious leader? Jesus is more than a great religious leader. He is the Son of God, born of the flesh, and uh, revealed as the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when you go to Mass and you are in front of the tabernacle and the priest repeating Jesus' words says, this is my body, this is my blood, what do you believe is actually happening there? Because if you find it, incredible to believe that that bread and wine really becomes Jesus's flesh and blood because he said so, especially in John chapter six. Then what do you do with the virgin birth or the resurrection? At what point are you really just back to where the Romans and the Greeks were before St. Paul talked about his good news? Are you simply back to worshiping nature Money, sex, and power is the, really the great powers in your life because that seems to be what really delivers for people in their estimation. St. Paul told the Romans that he had the true evangelion, the true good news, and it wasn't about Caesar Augustus. It was that God dwelt with his people. And to become part of that son, you needed to be baptized in Colossians, he calls it spiritual circumcision. In Ephesians, it's you become part of the body of Christ. And then in Acts, about confirmation and the Spirit of God dwelling within us. In the Eucharist, when we are in God and God is in us, as we gather at our Father's table and we are fed by the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, there's this great liturgical term, Perichoresis, I don't know if you've ever heard it. Perichoresis, like choresis sounds like chorus. Perichoresis basically describes a dance, that liturgy, the mass, is this dance, this interaction between God and his people. The Lord be with you, the priest says, and with your spirit, says the people. And the whole mass is the back and forth between God and his people, this divine dance. But the dance is consummated. This heavenly marriage is consummated in the power of the Holy Spirit, just like in the marriage of Joseph and Mary. You don't get very far as a Christian without understanding that when you enter into Mass, you're entering into God's world. And that when you leave Mass, you're taking God's world out with you because God wants to dwell with his people. And so Jesus came and lived amongst us, and now he lives in you. And when you go out into the world, you're his image and likeness. Now I know people find that hard to believe about themselves, but that is what the good news is. So as we gather together for the fourth Sunday of Advent thinking about Christmas, think of all the reasons we have to rejoice, because without God dwelling with us, we're at the mercy of all these other powers that mean us no good, that cannot deliver us, that cannot save us. The government, the economy, our bodies, the only one who can bring us home 
is Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin, revealed in power of the Holy Spirit. This has been a production of Oral Valley Catholic, and the music you've been listening to is Deus EBS, sung by our St. Mark's Festival Choir. Where charity and love prevail, there is God. Wish you a Merry Christmas 